Welcome back to 64, a chess podcast, the special edition where I am recapping the games from the 2021 World Chess Championship. I'm your longtime host, David Visgon, coming at you live from Copenhagen, Denmark. And uh, wow, these last three games have, uh, there's been a lot to talk about. Um, I don't know, if you've been uh, a chess fan and you haven't heard about these results, you must be living under a rock, and I envy you. Um, but I guess we'll just get right into it. Although, before I begin, I just want to uh, just do two quick things. First of all, um, I would like to just plug my Patreon. Uh, if you like the content I've been producing, or if you're new to the show and you want to support the work I do, uh, from editing to guest invitations to the preparation um, to even the theme song that I've made, uh, if you want to support some of this work, you can check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 64 podcast. Um, for just $1, uh, you can join the club um, for $3 a month. You can have access to the 64 inbox and participate in the show by asking questions to guests and just general questions that I'll answer. And uh, if you pay $5 a month, you will get a special shout out at the end of the show. Uh, I'm also thinking of, you know, for people who, who, who once I have a little bit bigger community, I'll, I'll start hosting like weekly tournaments and stuff like that so we can all play together and, and uh, compete and talk smack and, you know, do classic fun chess stuff. So if that all sounds intriguing to you or you just want to support the work that I do, uh, 64 podcasts uh, on Patreon, and uh, you will be making some dreams come true. And uh, the other thing I want to do is, as always, thank my uh, longtime sponsor, Aim Chess, for sponsoring uh, this podcast and this episode. You can use uh, the code DAVID30 at checkout to get 30% off your first month with Aim Chess. Um, if you want a taste of what Aim Chess is like and you haven't uh, ever used it, they have a yearly recap. You just put in your, your username on uh, chess.com or Lee Chess or Chess24, wherever you play, and they will uh, analyze your games and give you a lot of interesting uh, factoids about your games and the way you play and uh, help you improve your chess uh, today. So go check that out. And if you like what you see, um, which I'm sure you will, uh, you can use uh, code David30 to get 30% off your first month of your subscription with Aim Chess. So uh, a lot of great tools there, and they've been fantastic for me. So just want to give them a quick shout out. And uh, with that being said, I want to get right into this uh, game six. Game sixes in World Chess Championships across history have been uh, significant. Whether it's uh, you know Tal defeating Mikhail Botvinnik in game six with a stunning knight sacrifice, or uh, Boris Vasky losing uh, a like just a brilliant game by uh, like a perfect game by Bobby Fischer in game six in 1972. Um, I mean I could keep going. Uh, there's plenty of examples of decisive game sixes. I think Kasparov and Karpov, there was, a, there was a decisive game six. I think it was the 87 match. I don't really remember. Um, although, of course, um, even recently in the last World Championship, um, Caruana very nearly had a win. He had some crazy fortress by Magnus, uh, even though the engine said it was like some maiden 40 or something. Um, so there's always a lot of drama in game sixes. And uh, Magnus has the white pieces. And um, he... I, again, like my, my approach with all these recaps, I don't want to get too in the weeds about um, openings and, and theory, but Magnus's approach was very interesting. Uh, he opened with d4, so he did d4 in the game two and e4 in game four, and he opted to go for d4 again, so d4, e4, d4, um, some sort of pattern perhaps. And uh, unlike he, he, what was interesting about his opening um, decisions was that he kind of didn't show his hand. So Magnus basically, uh, he basically transposed into uh, Catalan, um, but he, he did it in a very strange move order, kind of not to show his hand, and also maybe to just see what Nepo was 
whether they just wanted to play a game of chess, uh, no theory, you know, game six, uh, just play man on man or, or so basically it was, you know, he sidestepped a lot of maybe what Nepo's prep could have been by playing, um, by developing the, the King's Knight first and then Fianchetto in a certain way. So that all, all in doing that way, he kind of avoided all the big famous D4 openings. And first interesting moment, I think would, would have been probably around move 10 where Magnus is basically offering a pawn for very rapid development. And, um, this is like on move 10 and it kind of seemed like um, Magnus, after Nepo declined this idea, this pawn sacrifice, that he was kind of out of prep because he took uh, he took like 23 minutes on the next move, or maybe 21 minutes. He, yeah, he took 20 minutes to basically develop a knight uh, into the center after Nepo played this, this B5 move. Um, and it was an interesting, it was an interesting choice. Uh, it did seem like the, there's some complications, a lot of tension between the pieces in this middle game. Um, Nepo was playing well though. He's playing very, very quickly. Um, until a certain point, he he really was his intuition was was phenomenal as it's been for, you know, most of the match to this point. And um, but th- there was this critical moment basically where, um, and I, this is something I want to talk about throughout the recap. Um, on move seventeen, uh, Magnus made a a damage to Jan's pawn structure, and this could have happened in two ways. He took this knight on f6, if you have watched the game, and Nepo could have either responded by taking with the queen or by taking with the pawn. And by taking with the pawn rather than taking with the queen, he basically kept queens on the board in a place where his structure is a little worse. And this is actually a very important decision if you follow the rest of the game, um, because this lasting damage to his pawn structure will prove to be fatal. And obviously, this is not something that you could foresee um, on move 17 or whatever. But when you're talking about a world championship or even when you're talking about analyzing your own games, um, I actually read a blog post that was very, um, very informative about this by uh, JJ Lang, if you follow them on Twitter uh, at Chessfields, that um, there are these little moments in chess games that kind of seem innocuous, um, but you have to kind of think about them when you look back and say, you know, this was decisive even in ways that you couldn't have foreseen. So this this damage probably was um, with the queens on the board. Nepo must have been optimistic about his chances to attack or at least for the chances that Magnus had to attack him despite the damage in the structure. And by keeping queens on the board, he gives himself more opportunities to win. So it's a practical decision, but one that does turn out to be costly. Um, I am sp- kind of spoiling the game because, I mean, if you haven't heard the result by now, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I don't know how how like this is this is uh this is gonna go down as one of the greatest chess games ever played. Um, so G takes F six on move seventeen, and from here we had some more shuffling, a little more trades, and uh, after some moves, we basically reached this critical position. Where you will remember this move probably um, because this this decision that that is made here again. I don't want to talk too much in depth about theory or the moves, but what happens in this game is. Um, it's, it's crucial for the sake of understanding high-level chess. Um, this is a cr- like a crucial thing to talk about. Nepo played this move, rook a to c8, uh, move 25. And when, whenever we talk about, and this is actually very important for, for game 8, whenever we talk about high-level chess, um, at, at this level, players very rarely make mistakes. The only way you make really serious mistakes is either under time trouble or under serious pressure. Um, very rarely will you just have, you know, the kind of blunders that you and I will have online where we, you know, we hang a bishop or, you know, hang a queen or, or, you know, think we see a mate, but then actually a knight is covering a square. Uh, grandmasters really don't make those kinds of mistakes. That's why they're grandmasters and super grandmasters, especially. 
So how the best players win chess games is imbalances. This is why the Sicilian is such a good opening at the highest level because the pawn structures that come out of the Sicilian are more imbalanced than something that comes out of an e4, e5 position. Um, or like a Petrov, this is why the Petrov is considered such a strong response to e4 for drawing a game because you basically you have a symmetrical pawn structure throughout the game. The bishops are placed on the same squares opposite each other. It's just symmetry, symmetry, symmetry. Symmetry is how games are drawn, um, and it's very hard to lose games at this level. So if you have symmetrical piece material, um, you have a, basically you have more chances to at least hold. And with black, generally, you want to hold in a world championship. And with white, you want to take your shots. Now, Nepo, by playing this move, he attacked Magnus's queen. And Magnus's response, he could have just moved the queen back. And, you know, he probably would have been fine. Like, But what Magnus actually did was, and this is, this is a testament to the psychology and how Magnus understands that so well. Um, compared to anybody else in chess. He actually took a queen off for two rooks. And, you know, maybe an engine, like it will say throughout the whole game, this is probably a draw according to an engine. But for Magnus, he understands that this is precisely the kind of thing that he needs for a win. He needs an imbalance because imbalance is going to give him more chances to to make more imbalances and create more weaknesses. Um, so even if the computer says it's even for a, on a practical level, on a human level, there is actually a significant imbalance here. And this is what Magnus looks to do throughout this game. He looks for imbalances and he uses those imbalances to create a masterpiece. Um, the game continued and uh, something that also should be talked about is both Magnus and uh, Jan and Time Trouble had this like double blunder. Um, Magnus's move, Rook D1, is just a completely puzzling. I don't know if he's going to analyze the game until... You know, he's done with the tournament, but it's an absolutely confusing move. And then um, Jan, on the other hand, had this bizarre move, uh, Queen D5, which basically everybody on in the chess world was criticizing. So they had this this double blunder, both of them in serious time trouble, basically playing Blitz. And, uh, you know, it kind of makes sense, but um, th their, their, uh, their games could have both ended right here because of those moves. Very easy play, basically... Um, Magnus would have had a mating attack and, and Jan basically could have just won clean material. So they both missed that in time trouble. And what we ended up getting in this game was, um, and then there was actually a second blunder by Jan where Magnus just missed this kind of zuglzong. He had like uh, on move 40, right on time control, he could have played uh, Rook DC2, I think it was. And uh, Rook DC2 is so strong because there's no move. But, you know, it was move 40, and there's a saying in uh, in chess also that, you know, the worst mistakes are made on move 40. When you have time control, you basically are most likely to blunder the game. So Magnus instead, he he just said, you know, I'm going to go for the grind. And it was very difficult for him to see, and there's so much time pressure when he probably just wanted another hour. He had 25 seconds on his clock when he made time control in this game. And uh, Nepo also had about 20 seconds, and he made his move. And uh, we had this position on move 40 when time control is entered. Both players have another hour for 20 moves, where Jan basically had a horrible pawn structure, but he has a passed pawn in the A-file, and he has a bishop and a queen, whereas Magnus has a safer king, better pawn structure, and he has two rooks and a knight. So uh, material balance, technically speaking, I think Magnus is up one point in material. Practically speaking, a queen and two rooks are about, even, like about equal, depending on the position, um, but it is an imbalance, and it is important to know. And uh, what happens in the next 50 moves is uh, basically computer-like play from Magnus, where he's looking for the slightest weaknesses that he could provoke, or the slightest 
the, the slightest thing that he could maybe convert, and he does so masterfully. He just he's shuffling pieces to any square, trying to turn anything he can into a weakness, and uh, he eventually tricks Nepo into winning this a pawn, and this allows him. So now he has less risk. He's up two points of material, or, or he was up two points of material. Um, until Nepo took a pawn, so now it's like three pawns, both of them, but there's important thing to know is that Magnus has uh, rerouted his pieces, and now he's looking for a very specific setup. He wants to trade off the bishop, and then try to play either two rooks for a queen, or rook and knight for a queen, but he basically wants to play something like that. And what's important to mention in this game is that the engine was kept saying this was a draw. According to Sese, they said this is a dead draw. Nobody can. There's no point in playing this. It's, it's going to go on forever. But Magnus, he kept going and he kept weathering Nepo down. And maybe with perfect play, this is a draw. Um, but there is time trouble for both of them. And uh, he was just relentless, like an animal, just did not stop. And then he played this move. Um, right Again, right before his own time control, he played F3. That was criticized by all the commentators um, for this match. Although this actually might have been one of the moves that really helped Magnus win in hindsight. Because it was a very committal move to his structure. But Magnus's plan is to promote with these three nice pawns that he has. Whereas Nepo's pawns are horrible. So basically, ne Magnus is uh, almost signaling his intention here. And nobody really realizes that you know he he must have foreseen that this would be important to start pushing the pawns early uh and so he made this committal pawn push right before time control and he pushed another pawn and then the next dynamite moment in this game was uh he kept shuffling pieces like a computer kept trying to look for the right square at the right time just looking for the right time to get a tempo on on a piece he got a tempo on the bishop and uh after some creative moves he found the knockout punch he needed he took a pawn and then he took a second pawn and this is i think like the 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 move this is the magnus move i mean this is the one that that tells you that this is a game is going to be a classic and at this point again the engine will tell you it's close to draw or there's some fortress or table based draw but we are not computers magnus knows this and he understood what he what opportunity he had to just grind nepomniachi down very slowly very agonizingly and to do that so successfully so he basically sacrificed a rook for a rook for two pawns and the bishop and uh, this left uh nepo in a position where he had one queen a king and a pawn um and basically this is a theoretical draw nepomniachi actually knew it was a theoretical draw but this might have actually hurt him because uh if you know it's a theoretical draw you need to play precisely because you know if, if white actually pushes the pawns White's going to win the game. It doesn't matter what the computer says. You have to actually play like the computer. So he sacrificed a rook for a bishop, basically. And this uh, gives, at the very least, this gave Magnus no more fears of blundering the game. At his level, he's not going to hang a rook or hang a knight. Uh, but somehow, he just kept going. He kept going. He, he shuffled for another 20 moves. He found the right setup for his pieces to win the H-pawn, or to trade the H-pawn, actually. That's really what, it, what should be said. And once he got the right setup, I mean, it, it literally took him, I'm just clicking through the game quickly, it took him something like 30 moves to get the setup, the piece setup he wanted. He finally, on move 110, he plays e4, and now he's signaling that he's going to push the pawns, everything is safe, he has his king, as there's no really good checks around him, and uh, sure enough, eventually he trades off the second pawn, and now he has two connected pawns in the middle, a rook and a knight for the, just a king and a queen. And again, 
looking at this with Stockfish, dead draw. Table-based draw, nothing to see here. You know, Nepo can hold. And this would already be a classic game, right? You know, this we're already approaching. I think, you know, the record was 120-something moves, uh, which was uh, Korchnik Karpov, um, which actually was not a good game. If you actually have looked through that game, as I did after this, uh, Korchnik blundered mate, um, in, like move 50, and he just never saw it. And uh, the game ended in a stalemate, so it actually was not a very clean game like this one. Um, like this one, aside for some time trouble, right, in like move 30 or something, it was extremely accurate. Both players played precisely. Nepo put up a hell of a defense to his credit, but Magnus somehow, and this is why they call it the Magnus effect, because he, somehow he just weathered the storm, this assault of, of attacks on his king, and he somehow just started to actually push the pawns, and... All it took was one mistake from Nepomniachi, and after a check, a knight block, it's over. The engine goes from, you know, zeros, dead draw, theoretical draw, to, oh, now it's actually plus one. Oh, now it's actually completely winning. And uh, I've been watching chess for a couple of years, and I even have a book on Magnus's like, 60 Greatest Games by GM Andrew Soltis, and everybody's talked about this Magnus effect and I've obviously I've seen games you know I've seen I've seen a lot of games like this like where this is but I've never actually watched it live and I watched this game for all seven hours and 40 minutes aside from one moment right after time control where I just got something to eat outside quickly I've never seen anything like this what Magnus accomplished in this game six was like uh, like a superhuman achievement there's no parallel to what he did you know, he he basically he defeated someone in the world championship in 136 moves, eight hour grueling, horrible horrible torture. Um, he he just tortured his opponents ever so slightly with and just when Nepal just slipped up at the very end, that's all he needed. He got his opening. He turned all those little imprecisions and little psychological um, defiances into uh, into a victory. And the huge victory in Game 6 with the white pieces against the challenger. Statement win. I don't even know how I would feel if I lost that way. But um, I think it's a very instructive win for chess players of all levels. Like just ne how never to give up and how to look for imbalances and how to use imbalances to your advantage. I mean, this is stuff that we can all take away from our own games. Um, but more importantly, I mean, this is really shows why Magnus is in a different class from everybody else. Because... He, he almost essentially hypnotized Nepomniachi or, you know, he, he psychoanalyzed what Nepomniachi was thinking. Maybe Nepo thought he was better or that he had some chances. And he just neutralized all of that into some kind of bizarre ending that, he, that only he could win. And um, it's a classic game. I mean, this is basically the greatest chess game I think I've ever watched live. Um, I don't think that's ever going to change unless there's another masterpiece in this match. Um, I don't think that's going to change for a long time. And uh, I think the damage to Nepo from this game has been clear if you look at the next two games. And, you know, there's other stuff that we can talk about, um, but I want to talk right now about Game 7. Um, game 7, Nepo, again, he had the white pieces, and there's a lot of uh, curiosity about what Nepo would do in this game. Would he stick to the Roy Lopez? Would he switch it up? You know, he's down a point in the match. And uh, Nepo stuck with the Roy Lopez, this anti-martial stuff that he's done three games already. And Magnus actually basically repeated the same opening, this Rook B8 thing that I talked about in the last recap. He actually, he repeated it again. So whatever his prep is, he seemed to trust it. He had H3 again, and, and, and then there were some slight deviations. But again, Nepomniachi, he got like a, a decent advantage in the opening. Nothing to write home about, but, you know, 
It was enough that he could have maybe squeezed. But sure enough, pieces just came off the board in the middle game and it just petered out to a draw. And this is a little peculiar for me. I don't think there's really much to talk about in this game. Because, you know, you're down a point. Sure, you don't worry about, like, a rush, but how do you just allow everything, move 20-something, to just trade off into three pawns and rooks, you know, when you need you need a win? Um, I, I, I think that that psychologically... They can't be good when you're trying to win the match. And uh, furthermore, it never really seemed like he, he was taking, you know, this uh, this chance to apply pressure. So I don't know. I, I think especially given the match situation after game eight, he cannot stick with Virgil Lopez. And, you know, it's a res day uh, tomorrow, so we'll, I guess we'll see what he does on Tuesday. But I can't imagine that this, this strategy has been helpful um, at all to stick with this opening and... and uh, Basically, to just trade down at some quick draws when now you, you know, especially given that you have to play Magnus with the white pieces the next day after having this torturous game. You know, you could say that maybe they were both really tired after the last game and both of them just wanted to draw. You know, that makes sense. I can't really hate on that too much. You know, it's it's a very easy for me to criticize people when I have, you know, my Coca-Cola can and, uh, and uh, Stockfish 14 loaded up on my computer. So it's way easier for me to criticize them. But in any case, something tells me that this, uh, this Rulopez stuff, it, it, it's, you know, the engine is giving him plus 0.5 consistently. And then, you know, the second he's out of his prep or the second he's to come up with something original, he just trades down everything and goes into a draw. I don't really understand that strategy. You can't win when you're from behind like that. So I don't really think there's that much to talk about about game seven. Truthfully, I actually was pretty busy on Game 7, so that was the first game I didn't actually watch, but I had my friends texting me about it, and I was kind of just disappointed to see that this is how Nepo bounced back, because people were hoping, you know, you have a crazy game, and you're hoping for uh, the next day the challenger to equalize, and also in dramatic fashion. I mean, you can think, like, for example, I'm reading the non-files. I've talked about this book like crazy in my podcast, but Topalov won a brilliant uh, game in the first game of their match against Anand, um, just due to preparation and preparation, sorry, and Anand uh, just miscalculating or forgetting his lines, and Anand immediately struck back to level the score. We didn't get to see that, um, but it didn't really seem like there was even that serious attempt, unfortunately. So, game eight just wrapped up a couple of hours ago, as of me recording this, and. Uh, Again, there was a lot of questions. How is Magnus going to respond? What's his strategy going to be? And uh, again, I've talked a little bit about the psychology and about symmetric openings, and this is all going to come back in this match because, well, sorry, this is all going to come back in this game because we had e4, e5, but Petrov once again repeating the birthday surprise for Magnus. And this time, the move order was a little different, and Fabiano Caruana, who's doing commentary on chess.com, he actually predicted this exact move order. I don't know how. Um, and I think he basically predicted everything um, until knight d2. And Magnus played knight d2, which is... So actually, I'll tell you guys a story. I was doing a chess lesson with my coach, uh, Grandmaster Ori Kobo from Israel. Um, I actually recorded a podcast episode with him. It's the second one I ever recorded. So if you want to see what the early days of the podcast were before I knew how to do the audio levels and all that, you can check that out. It's a great, great episode. But when we saw knight d2 being played um, on move uh, 7... That's when uh, I, I hung up, but the last thing we said was, yep, this is going to be a quick draw because, you know, the, already the knights are coming off. I have no idea what Magnus is prepared with just bishop pairs on both sides, completely symmetrical pawn structure. Maybe he just wants a quick draw. It is what it is. 
And um, so that's what it was. You know, you, if you look on the position on move eight, literally completely symmetrical. You can take a horizontal line on the, between the fourth and fifth ranks and fold it up. And I mean, the, everything lines up perfectly. Nothing to see here. Um, Magnus castled and I kind of thought, okay, now uh, black castles too. And we have, you know, some, some moves. Everybody just plays something solid and, you know, 40 move draw and, and applause. And then Pomniachi, to his credit, he played aggressively. He pushed this H pawn, H5, and this is this is worth talking about, um, for a number of reasons. First of all, I mean, I think the approach is correct, because you need to you need to play a little sharper. Um, clearly, he he's he going into Magnus's preparation. Magnus picked this line for a reason, and now I want to talk a little bit about what um, Hikaru and Sam Shankland were talking about um, this game today. And first of all, their commentary is fantastic. I hope Sam Shankland goes back. I really like Sam Shanklin because he's brutally honest about chess. Sometimes not in the nicest way. I remember he was doing um, he was doing some camp online, and um, yeah, I, I remember he was doing something uh, some camp online, like streaming and and with some people, and he was just like very brutally honest about uh, like one of these people's games, and the people in chat were like, "How are you so mean?" or whatever. He's like. And he was just kind of like, I'm just being objective. I, I don't remember the exact details, but my point is, like, Sam, he's very honest about chess in a very refreshing way, even if it comes off as a little abrasive. And so I think he's a, he's a very good match for Hikaru, who sometimes will just, like, say stuff. Like, he said, he, for example, later in their conversation, Hikaru was like, yeah, I feel like Fabiano, like, he had real chances in the match. And then Sam was just like, like, when? And he just said, tell me when those <laughs> moments were. And Hikaru was, yeah, maybe I guess you're right. Hindsight is 2020. But I just like, think that whole dynamic was amazing. And it was a great conversation between the two. But anyway, during their, their stream, and maybe people who watch the stream can, can confirm this, Hikaru talked a little bit about this, like, psychological voodoo that Magnus uh, is capable of. This is just this witchcraft or, that, or you know, warlockery that, that he's capable of. So... Magnus gave you this check queen e1, and all the commentators were saying, queen e1, why are you giving this check with the queen? And um, what Magnus must have realized was that after getting this check, because he's already played h5, he is not going to be playing for queen e7, castles kingside, because he's already created a weakness on the kingside by pushing his h-pawn. So Magnus, by offering basically offering this queen trade, he basically baited Nepo into moving his king, king f8. And this is like the, this is about all about the psychology because what this actually does is it, it allows Magnus to kind of maneuver his pieces in a way that allows him to get this kind of dream Magnus position that, that Nepo is not comfortable with. So after the king moves, well, first of all, it's, it's kind of a, you know, he's not castled. He can't castle anymore. His rook can never be connected with the other rook. Um, and you know, he's going to be lacking in development. He has a permanent weakness due to H5. And now already Magnus's position must have been slightly, slightly better. And Magnus found all the precise movements. And, um, this is the kind of the position that Magnus is able to just torture his opponents with. And you have to remember he's Nepo's already down a point in the match. And he, he, he got this position right out of the opening due to Magnus's prep that, you know, seemed like a draw uh, to most people. And suddenly it's like, yeah, I mean, it's it's very dry. But Magnus, of all people, is going to be able to do something with it. And uh, I think Jan's comments were kind of illuminating because he thought he had, like, serious chances in this game anyway. So he was probably way too optimistic 
This actually might uh, might highlight how he felt about Game 6. Perhaps he was also overly optimistic about his chances, and that's why he he allowed this uh, this queen trade for two rooks. He probably thought he had really good winning chances, and, and he just... Magnus just proved to be the better endgame player and to to have uh, better resilience. Just thoroughly got outmatched in the end. But here, I mean, Nepo's play has been very seriously criticized. I think uh, one, I don't think anyone has played a a game this bad in the World Championships since uh, Boris Gelfand had that horrible loss to Vichy Anand in 2012, almost 10 years ago. But uh, basically, I don't think anybody's had a loss as bad. Fabiano Caruana basically he he said that uh, if he didn't know better, he th- would think that Magnus was playing against a twenty three hundred. So basically, disastrous play and uh, the the big critical moments. Magnus was just inducing weaknesses very slowly, torturing poor Nepo. And then there is this critical move B five. Even though the posi- again, according to an engine, if you just look at the engine, engine was ruined chess. So engine will just tell you, oh, this is. You know, zeros or 0.1, it's going to be a draw. Um, if you actually look at the like the piece placement after move 21, it's clear that Magnus has all the active pieces. He has the ideal setup. He has no weaknesses and basically no weaknesses. He had this isolated pawn, fine. But um, Nepo makes this horrible blunder B5, which by force um, gives Magnus a pawn. And then um, there's this critical line that the commentators talked about where Nepo would have had to sacrifice the bishop. Um, well, not even sacrifice. He basically would, would, he would have a terrible pawn structure, but he would take this pawn on h3. Magnus would have a really unsafe king, and that would be the only way that maybe he have some chances. Instead, Nepo just played this passive move, queen d8. Again, if you watch the games, you didn't watch the games, uh, you'll know what I'm talking about. And here, it's just dead lost. Um... Magnus basically got everything he wanted. He played the rest of the opening just like a machine. He found all these weaknesses. Anish Giri had this great example, you know, for, for Magnus to have to show off his technique and the position that arose um, would be like making a, a uh, artisan shoemaker making a shoe for a bear. <laughs> Such a weird analogy, but I, I what the point he was trying to make basically is that, like, Magnus is able to produce weaknesses and beat players and dead even queen endgames, queens and pawns. So now with this horrible structure that arose um, after everything was traded, you know, Magnus just being two pawns up in a queen endgame, like, like basically saying Jan should just resign. And people were curious, like, how, how soon will he resign? You know, maybe Magnus will blunder, but that was never really going to happen. Magnus just played this perfectly. He, he found the right plan, the right position for the queen, and that was it. Lights out. He defended properly when he needed to, and... Uh, it was uh it was pretty pretty much GG's in this game uh, on move forty six. Um, I think actually the over under was actually forty six moves in the game too. Uh, not that I follow gambling or anything because I don't, but that's what I heard anyway. So that's just pretty funny. Um, so what to make about this? Uh, Magnus is up two points in a world championship match. That's basically GG. The only times this only people have come back was like two times in history. Fisher came back and. Uh, uh, someone else came back. I don't remember what the stat was. Um, but but that was in a way different era back when there was many, many more games. There are only six games left, and Nepo basically needs to get at least two wins and four draws uh, to even it. Uh, another loss will be a disaster. Basically zero chance to come back. Um, yeah, I mean, we know now that we're basically not going to have 14 games unless Nepo equalizes, um, and it's difficult to see how he's going to do that because if he just keeps playing this uh, 
where Lopez, I mean, despite the brilliant preparation for the entire duration of this match, I mean, it's not working, this this line. So he has to go into his bag with something else. And you have to imagine that Magnus is not going to let uh, Nepo get any sort of crazy sharp lines. He's going to have to play dry, boring chess. Uh, I, I mean, I expect to see some uh, Alapin Sicilians and stuff like that. It's like stuff that is just, you know, you trade off a bunch of pieces, like pawn and game and shake hands. Uh, Magnus is going to make, you know, if you thought Magnus's tenacity was annoying going for a win, now wait to see how bad it is when he's trying to go for boring draws. I mean, it's going to be business as usual, but at least we should we should maybe see some interesting opening choices with the black pieces, uh, maybe more Sicilians. And uh, like I said, I mean, Nepo's prep has been really good. Um, but I think he's just on tilt, unfortunately. Uh, and I feel really bad for him. Um, because it's, it's, it's really hard, uh, to, I mean, I don't know how I would feel losing, losing like a game, like game six is unimaginable to, to play a game for eight hours and to lose and like to somebody who basically outsmarted the, the chess world, <laughs> everybody was, was kind of counting him out. Or I think the people who were saying, yeah, Magnus will win this. I think, you know, there are people on Twitter who are saying Magnus will win every game. So GMs even. No, I'm not talking about your average like chess.com like Magnus super fan or whatever. I'm talking about like real serious respectable chess brains like are I think are way too optimistic about about Magnus winning every single game and so I think that was kind of an effect but you know lo and behold he did it. He 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 converted game 6 which is a masterpiece. I mean, I really don't think this recap can kind of do it justice. I think it's kind of a thing that it's a kind of game that, you know, all the analysis that's on the internet right now, people should save those videos and make one enormous book with all the stories, all the lines, compare them, and turn it into a whole thing. Um, I think that ha that somebody should do that, because that would be, um, I think it would just be really important. Um, would be a huge achievement, and uh, there's a lot that's already been said and written about that game, and I'm not really giving anything new in that regard, but, um, you know, I'm still recapping these games for y'all, so I don't really know what else to say. I mean, this match is kind of over. Um, I was hoping to see decisive games, um, but I, I just don't think that Jan has basically, since the loss, has put up any kind of fight. And now he has six games to basically do the impossible. Um, and a lot of the discussion now around these games is going to be about, you know, the next challenger, and I don't think he's going to get the respect that he deserves. Uh, you know, the first five games, he really played really well, but he hasn't been taking those opportunities um, when he's had better positions in the openings to try and squeeze. And uh, I don't know if it's fear. I don't know if it's some psychological advantage that Magnus has over him. But, um, you know, one more win for Magnus, by the way. And I think that they're going to be tied all-time in classical. So. Um, and, you know, for Magnus, I mean, P, he's always been criticized uh, for this uh, 2018 match that, you know, he was even with Caruana. And it should have been uh, a tie or he shouldn't have kept his title. Uh, you know, he's gone to Rapid already. He went into Rapid, like, in 2016, 2018, after the first bunch of games. People were saying classical chess is dead. I wonder where those haters are now, because uh, <laughs> I'll tell you that in the last moments of that um, game six, chess was by far the most streamed thing on Twitch. It was trending on Twitter. There was, like, hundreds of thousands of people watching it on YouTube. So there probably were, like, millions of people who were tuning in to see Magnus, like, do this thing. And even though... Um, I don't know how many people who are like into chess now, like really follow top level chess. 
I think anybody who, who understands anything about chess knows that 137 moves is and a seven-hour game is a long time. And to watch that finish in a professional scene, whether it's, you know, I don't know, it's just like when you hear on the news or, you know, you get a text from your friends that, oh, hey, the Nets game is going to quadruple overtime. Like, you're going to tune into that. That's interesting whether you know anything about the sport or you don't. And Magnus turned that into a win. He, you know, Engine was saying it's a draw, and he was like, no. I don't think so, and I'm going to keep playing. And uh, it's just remarkable, remarkable. And even in the kind of position that he won in is the kind of position that any one of us would lose with either color in a rapid game. Um, and he managed to just squeeze uh, gold. He, he managed to squeeze uh, honey out of the most uh, disgusting rock on the road. So, yeah, I don't know. And then the last thing I kind of wanted to just talk about a little bit is um, what does this mean for Magnus uh, long-term? Um, what's going to be his strategy now? Something that I've learned from reading this in Non-Files book is that you really can never uh, you can never give up. Uh, you can't just become passive because just like Nepo has learned the hard way, the minute that you kind of think you're headed towards a draw, as he actually did um, with his King F8 move in Game 8, he said so in the press conference that he just thought that there's no difference between the Queen the queen blocking and the king moving because either one was heading for a boring draw. And this must have been part of Magnus's preparation in game eight. They must have known that, Mag that oh, this is a boring draw as they think. And this is exactly what we're going to use um, psychologically to, to push for an advantage. And, and he basically, uh, he induced a huge, huge blunder by Nepo. It was just a horrible move. Um, that being said, it's a move I probably would have played, but maybe that's the problem. Um, and in any case, I mean, it just tells you, first of all, like, how freaking accurate these guys are, you know, when there's a serious mistake with no time trouble, um, th that's not complicated to see, like, they will just make it 100% of the time, it's like free throws for them, and, uh, you know, what does this mean for Magnus's legacy, you know, five in a row, uh, probably, you know, he's gonna definitely retain the title, in my opinion, I don't think there's a I don't think there's any chance that Nepo, Nepo, I think, could very well come back and win a game, that's not unthinkable, um, but I, I don't think there's any chance that he's going to win this match uh, anymore. Like, to take such a serious lead in the middle of the match is uh, is going to be very hard to, to overcome in a classical game. Like, to win on demand twice in six games against, against Magnus in uh, classical time control is just borderline impossible. So it's going to be really interesting to see those games. Um, I'll definitely do another recap for games 9 and 10. I don't think uh, I'm going to need to do uh, a recap of the rapid games anymore, which I th basically thought would have to happen. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of where we're at with these games. So uh, I don't know. Hope you enjoyed listening. Um, like I said, there's been a ton said, and I kind of just try to give my own unique take on it, though I do understand that uh, there's, you know, there's no shortage of stuff that's been written about, particularly Game 6. I don't think Game 7 was really that interesting at all. Uh, game eight, I just finished watching, and it, I mean, it really was just a disastrous game from Nepo. Just you know, he just played really poorly, and now not only does he have to win in style, as he said after game six once, he has to do it twice in another six games against uh, the greatest player of all time. So, yeah, that's uh, that's basically where I'm at. Uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to uh, this special version of Sixty Four Chess Podcast. And uh, I'll get back to doing, uh, you know, interviews again very soon. 
probably once the match is over, I already have some stuff lined up for December and January. A lot of cool guests. Um, so yeah, I hope you guys have uh, enjoyed uh, this uh, this podcast. I'll be back for the next few games in a couple of days. Uh, I really enjoy making these. Though my throat does hurt a little bit now, actually, so I should probably drink some tea or something. Um, but in any case, uh, thanks for listening to 64 Chess Podcast. I'm your host, David, as always. You can use code DAVID30 at checkout with AIMCHESS um, to get 30% off your first month. And if you like what you listen to, if you like listening to me ramble uh, and you want to support uh, more serious work like me, you know, talking to cool guests or me, you know, just making other kind of chess content, which I'm planning on doing, um, but I won't reveal too much. Uh, check me out on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash 64 podcast. Uh, I want to thank you guys so much for listening and for all the support um, in 2021. Uh, we are getting close to uh, 2022, which is uh, going to be a whole new year for my podcast. Hopefully a lot of cool new stuff. So stay tuned, stick around, and I'll see you guys, uh, I'll see you guys very soon. So take it easy.